It has been said that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. Here, we connect anonymously. This is Addicts in the Dark with Quick Nick. Happy to confirm I'll be speaking at the Ontario Harm Reduction Virtual Conference this year. That's Ontario, Canada, by the way. I'll be speaking about overcoming social barriers to create solutions for addiction. That's happening November 16th and 17th. More info to come. Meantime, caller 22 and their story about addiction. Addicts in the dark. Hello. Hello. Shit, I did it again. Hi. Now you can hear me. Hi. How's it going? Good, good. Is this reception coming in? Totally. That was my bad. I'm coming in loud and clear, right? Yeah. Cool. Let me know when, how you want to go and when to start. Let's go. Tell me your story about addiction. Sounds good. So, you know, my message is to share my experience, strength, and hope. That's what I was always taught. It wasn't always that way. My parents were divorced. My mom raised me on welfare food stamps while getting her bachelor's degree. My dad ran a wilderness survival school in the Green Mountains. And my parents shared joint custody, so I'd go from two weeks in one household to two weeks in another household. My entire childhood growing up, like one, two, three, four, five. Um, and in that time, like as I've learned, like the learned behaviors, the addictive behaviors that began as a child they were out of survival. They were out of getting attention. They were out of making myself escape my reality. And I just started mimicking things I saw in my dad. My dad would take me on these affairs with other women. And I would see, like I had an earache one, one night and I walked into a room and my dad's having sex with this woman. And I'm like four years old. And that image, like is still in my head today at 32 years old. So like just the the continual observations from dysfunctional behaviors, chaos, yelling, kind of jealous, narcissistic behavior on my dad's end. And, you know, so I was just in this real tough environment and at five years old or four years old, I was sexually abused and I was under my dad's care. And that was like, you know, something that never should have happened. And I blamed my dad my whole life. I didn't really know how it impacted me until my addiction later on in life. And not knowing who I ever really was, that's a big story of, you know, big part of my story is I never knew who I was. And I was always looking to find who I was through the externals of addiction, sex, money, and drugs and alcohol. So I, I, at a young age, after I was sexually abused, I started like, getting into more sexual promiscuous behavior when I was like five and six and seven years old. Like it was just weird behaviors. And, you know, I really never knew what I was doing. So as I continued to get older, I hated my reality. I saw other people's lives and I wanted their lives. I wanted their families. I wanted what they had. And I developed this type of resentment of envious and envy and jealousy that I saw in other people. And I, you know, would 
begin to, you know, kind of lie and manipulate to make myself fit in, to adapt to my environment, to make myself liked. And, you know, that really came about and, you know, in middle school and my behaviors were like, I wanted to be the class clown, the center of retention. I was in a pretty big middle school. I was, you know, involved in sports. I was involved with wanting to be popular and wanting to fit in, you know, that, you know, turned into just my, my image. Like I wanted to be someone who I had talked to a lot of people. I wanted to be involved in all these, you know, sleepovers and friends and parties and, you know, it all got fun when I took my first drink. I was 13 years old in between eighth and ninth grade. And, you know, I got blacked out drunk on Goldschlager, threw up, got dizzy, got the spins, you know, woke up not feeling great. And that became my identity from 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And through those years of high school, you know, my academics fell. My, I stopped playing basketball. I stopped playing golf. I stopped running track. My GPA went from like a 3.4 to 2.5. I would cheat on every single exam. And my life became centered around partying in the college town where I'm from, going to frat parties in ninth and 10th grade, you know, taking my mom's car out without her permission and driving with my friends, stealing beer from all the supermarkets. And so my drinking was just about partying and fitting in and playing beer pong and doing keg stands and meeting girls and hooking up with girls. And I had this, you know, I became a serial, you know, relationship. I wanted to be in relationships with women all the time. And, you know, from doing that, I started cheating and lying and manipulating to have one girlfriend in one part of the town. And then the outskirts of town, I had another girlfriend. And then I'd have a, you know, a, a girlfriend in a different grade who didn't really know. And I started just looking for attention through girls and alcohol. And that was distracting me from anything to do with reality. Like, what am I going to do at 18? What am I going to do at 21? Am I ever going to have a family? Like those, you know, life questions, you know, going to college, like that wasn't, you know, I would figure it out when I got there. Like I'm a pretty self-willed person and that's cost me a lot of, you know, my, a, a lot of pain and a lot of suffering doing what I wanted to do and what I thought was the right thing to do. So. Anyways, moving forward through high school, um, you know, all this drinking and partying had a consequence, you know, I would say I was 17, 2007, junior in high school, I got arrested for two drinking and driving charges, petty larceny for stealing, I think it was like $320 of Keystone Light from the Wegmans grocery store, and I continued to, you know, get like public urinations, open containers, um, now I was put on probation and misdemeanor drug court when I'm a senior in high school. I violated probation by showing up to an alcohol and drug counseling class where I blew numbers one morning from drinking the night before. And that sent me to my first rehab and treatment when I was, I was like 17, like I said, and I went for to a 28 day program and I went in there manipulated, said what I needed to say, denied anything that was, you know, I was a problem drinker and I checked myself and I, Hadn't used drugs yet, hadn't really been turned on to much else outside of, you know, alcohol and occasional marijuana and such like that. But being on probation, I had to figure out when I could drink, when I couldn't drink. So now my life became a game that I would play with probation and these co-decision makers. I had a lot of co-decision makers in my life where I had to show up here, had to report here, had to go to this class, had to go to this court, had to see this judge, had to do this mental health counseling. 
and my life sucked. I mean, I was controlled and I tried to escape every which way possible. You know, the lies really just became like, you know, saying I was one place and being another place, saying I had a job, but I really didn't, telling my mom one thing and doing another thing. You know, I would get decent grades in high school because I was still cheating and you know, and that had consequences once I actually had to take my first exam on my own. I didn't know how to study and take an exam. I had to teach myself how to write papers because all I did was plagiarize all through high school. So I just lived one big lie. I was so scared to face reality and who I was and where I fit in in this world. And, you know, it was just anything to fa- anything to deflect myself from, you know, tomorrow really is it was a fear of you know living so so part of my story also is my mom has been sober for 37 years and she's been in Alcoholics Anonymous since I was born so I knew about AA at this time and I went to a meeting after my first DWI got introduced to AA and it was like that is not me I like to play I like to go to parties I like to play beer pong I like to hook up with girls I don't drink every day. I don't have, you know, I got in some trouble, but like still it was always an excuse. I always had an answer for why I drank, why I got pulled over, why I was stealing beer. And, you know, I like drink. I like the effect of alcohol. I mean, what alcohol gave me, like I said, was this identity. It gave me, you know, a feeling that I was part of, you know, I was like a center of, where still where the party was these college parties up in college town and you know I just revolved in that and I started selling drugs at this point and I you know was really just absorbed in this lifestyle of being somebody but like the reality of it was like is I was I was nobody I was chasing something that was so artificial that was so manufactured in my life like oh I want to be this party person I want to be this drug dealer. I want to be this image. I want to be able to, you know, live a life, but I didn't know how to live in this world without a drink, a drug, a substance to alter, you know, just feeling inside my body with nothing. You can find the meaning in the mess and the magic of every day with Melissa Armstrong coaching. Go to strongarm.ca for more. It's interesting how you bring up identity and alcohol because as a whole, we glamorize drinking and give ourselves a pass to get absolutely hammered every weekend in college or every wedding we go to, or we even make an event out of drinking itself by going to a bar to just drink. What I'm saying is we glamorize drinking so much that it's perfectly acceptable for this drug we call alcohol to become part of our identity. Oh, absolutely. And and like in the community where I was raised, like a lot of my peers and friends also had like small run-ins with the law, a DWI or, a, you know, something or other, or they got really blacked out one night, did something so stupid or did something horrible. And then like they corrected those behaviors and they never did them again. And that was, I guess, one of my failures is I continued the insanity of, wow, I got this DWI. I should never drink and drive again. But there I was literally the next day, you know, thinking I'm in control. I'm not going to drink too much. I'm in control. And I get, you know, pulled over again. And so I I went through this like really insane 
Like, I'm going to do things differently, but the behaviors are going to be the same. I had to try every single thing and fail every single which way possible to learn not to do it again. Because it began to cost me, you know, my freedom, my relationship, my trust, my respect. And so my senior year of high school, I failed my senior year economics class. I failed the final. I didn't show up to like more than half of the classes, had a C minus in the class. And like four days before graduation, I found out I wouldn't be walking in my graduation and I'd have to take summer school um, economics to get my high school credit to get my diploma. So like that was a huge like ego killer. Like I didn't, you know, I went through four years of high school being like this person. And then all of a sudden I'm not there in graduation. And like, that's what cost me at the very end was I didn't get to walk with my graduating class because of my drinking my senior year, skipping classes, not going to classes, not able to do basic life things like show up and do my homework, show up and go to class that other kids were able to do while still partying and drinking and doing the things we were doing. But I had this, this lack of motivation, this lack of drive that the shortcut, always the shortcut, the easiest way, the cheating method, the lying method would, would work out. And that was one of the first feelings where I was like, fuck, I'm not graduating high school now. Not one college accepted me. What am I going to do? And like, I was kind of panicking. I was dating a girl at the time who, you know, I was living at her parents' house and her family's house. She was still in high school. And like, I continued to rely on women in relationships to fix all my problems. To get, I had no license during this time. So I, you know, my girlfriends drive me everywhere. I did had no job, no money. My, my dad and my relationship was piss poor and he was the center of my, you know, where I get my money from, who pays for everything in my life. My dad controlled every single financial thing and was, I was a financial prisoner of my father. My father was a pretty wealthy man as he continued his, you know, business endeavors onward. And, you know, I became this financial prisoner. So I never had money. I never had anything. I, you know, like I said, I sold some drugs to try and get by, but that just got me to drink and drug more and paid for that and did well in the summer classes. And once I started going to, to school here, I started drinking and doing cocaine four to five nights a week. Every single night I lived above a bar in a college town and I did drug cocaine until five, six, seven in the morning every day till, you know, till I was by myself hating my life by the, you know, fifth day but I would do it again the next weekend. And I continued this self-destructive trying to get by this lie that I was going to classes and doing okay. And I was really just now addicted to, you know, cocaine drinking was just part of the lifestyle, but I hated drinking. My body started rejecting alcohol. So I would vomit every day. I'd vomit every morning. You know, my health started like just taking turns from like having, you know, blood in my throw up and like, just not eating, not sleeping well. My heart was starting to feel funny. And this was just the beginning. This was the beginning of 10 more years of, you know, full-blown addiction. And in the following semester, I signed up for some courses, never ended up paying for the courses and dropped out before the first three weeks. And, you know, my girlfriend broke up with me. I, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. And I ran to my dad and started work working for my dad. And this summer and from this spring to summer was when I um, first tried opiates and started getting into opiates. 
I had, you know, like my wisdom teeth taken out at one point. So I'd taken Vicodin once or twice before and it was all right, but it didn't like do anything too special. I liked the way it felt, but I didn't know anything more than that. You know, I'd get them from the doctor occasionally and that'd be it. And then my brother started, um, I have an older brother. He's two years older than I and running parallel. I used him as a, um, someone who I got my drugs from and me and him did a lot of drugs together for many years after that. Um, so I got turned on to using opiates a little bit. And around this time I started going through this pretty horrible elbow pain where I had a previous elbow injury when I was in like fifth grade, I dislocated it. And then I injured it tubing or water skiing or some, something like that where I injured my elbow and I had a pinched nerve and a piece of fracture that was floating in my elbow. So I went to the doctor and, you know, found out my elbow was pretty screwed up. And, um, now I started relying on getting pain pills for my brother and, um, you know, started using really like uh, morphine, 30 milligram pills and, you know, just whatever I could find there oxy milligram oxy 30s around then and oxy 80s i'd get it every now and again and i would just do them occasionally and you know at the same time i was trying to figure out what was was my next plan in life going to be what was i going to do and i figured out i was going to go down to pennsylvania and go to school at penn state and i was going to follow a girlfriend down there and go to school at penn state and i went to visit down there i loved it had a lot of friends down there loved it and it was you know I was going to transfer my credits that I had and go down to Penn State. And so I transferred down there. And at the same time, I had a, a previous high school girlfriend that went there. And I kind of rekindled that relationship. And that, that was why I ultimately went down to Penn State was to be with this woman. And, you know, I got down there and, um, you know, I had been now kind of addicted to opiates in like a playful way where I wanted to do them every couple nights or weekend or whatever you know I was still drinking still doing recreational cocaine and still addicted to you know getting attention somehow and getting outside myself so transferred down to this new new university um and I joined a frat and I started pledging a fraternity to fit in to feel part of to you know just really to start over is I really felt like now I could be somebody now I could be myself and people are going to like me for who I am today. And, you know, who I am today is this, you know, a kid that could get, you know, a good weed from where he's from and I could get cheap weed where he's from. And, you know, that's what I kind of became known for was this, you know, marijuana dealer now. And, you know, I didn't do big sales. I'd come down from where I was from with like a, a pound uh, every two weeks and I'd give it to my buddies and I'd make like $800 and I'd go back and do it again and do it again and do it again. And I'd have enough money to drink, to buy clothes, to go to New York city, to go on Philadelphia, to go to basketball games, to, you know, to do little bullshit things. I wasn't really had no means to, you know, doing anything besides to fit in with and make friends for, for something that made me feel good about myself. And there was like, nothing's wrong with what I'm doing. And, I started doing pretty well in school. My first semester, I had all um, B's and A's and, you know, I was took four classes. Um, and then I broke up with my high school girlfriend there and I started meeting other girls. And I was just, I felt like my life was good. I was pledged to fraternity. They accepted me into the fraternity. And, you know, I was like, oh, summer's coming up. My first semester's over. I went back to my hometown, got a pound of weed 
came back down to the school, had plans to spend all, all my summer in New York City, kind of just hanging out, selling some bud, maybe I'd get a job, maybe I'd do whatever, you know, just figure it out. You know, life was good. And the day before that I was to leave to New York City, um, I was sitting on my couch watching a basketball playoff game. My buddy was going to come over. We are going to snort an Oxy-30, hang out, and have the pound of weed tucked away in a suitcase, vacuum sealed right away, no big deal. Everything's great. You know, I have money in my pocket, you know, about to make some more money. And then knock, knock, knock. All of a sudden I open the door thinking it's my friend coming in and six plain closed cops come in and it's the DEA task force. And at that split second, the few seconds was that they tackled me to my, the floor and handcuffed me. Everything in my life came crashing down. And it was like, how? And I was stuck and I was lost and I was just, I was fucked and I was just now handcuffed in my apartment as five cops went through every drawer and nook and cranny in my apartment, found some petty ass, you know, pound of weed, you know, $3,000, you know, a scale, some nonsense, whatever. And like, my life was like, what now? And as I always did, I went to a woman and she took me in and she was a, a sophomore at Penn State, about to be a junior. She came from a wealthy family, had a car, had an apartment. And this, she, you know, saved me that entire summer. I didn't have to worry about a thing that summer. I lived with her. I lived at home. I lived wherever I could. I went back to Penn State, took some summer classes, got a job at a sub shop, started flipping cheesesteaks. Sorry, just to clarify, were you criminally prosecuted in the end? So at the time, and this is, you know, it's still part of my story today that I talk about, like I have three marijuana felonies on my record from this. I was charged with 13 felonies. Um, When I, when they arrested me, they let me go on the basis that I was in contact with, contact with them and cooperate. What they wanted was, is to turn me into a confidential informant to go out and rat on other friends of mine, not drug dealers, but friends, just petty dealers, selling Coke, Molly, Oxys, heroin, whatever I could find. And they wanted to set me up um, as a confidential informant. And I went through this moral dilemma, like, what the fuck is going on? Like, do I fucking do this or do I get an attorney? And at the end of it, my dad paid $15,000, hired an attorney, the same attorney that represented Jerry Sandusky, the Penn State sexual abuser. So I had this top-notch attorney that was representing me. And so I went through the summer like with this plan, like I was going to be all good, scotch-free. I just sold some pot. Nothing's going to happen. And I still had no idea how I got arrested, how anything came, um, you know, to be. And once I hired the attorney, I got all of the evidence. And I found out that my closest friend, who was in a fraternity across the street from me, my closest friend that I made at Penn State was the confidential informant who had ratted me out and who had you know, turn me in essentially. And I wonder if they, sorry, I wonder if they would have tackled you to the ground if you were selling alcohol illegally, for example, which I guess brings me to this question. What was their goal here? Were the police trying to get to high level distributors? Were they trying to get weed out of college campuses? Are they just criminalizing people for the sake of criminalizing people? I mean, it, exact, it, it's about, it's about the money in the system of our criminal justice system, how to keep, how to end, continue making money in our system. So in a Commonwealth state like Pennsylvania, each county has its own laws. Where Penn State is, their counties do whatever they want as as far as drug charges, as far as, you know, using confidential informants. And so in a college with 50,000 students, say you have 
20, 20 people selling drugs, they get arrested, they're told you could either get kicked out of Penn State, face these felonies, or you co- cooperate, go and take this $200 and go buy some cocaine from one of your buddies, and then we'll monitor all of you guys. So they continue to build the system of snitching and confidential informants. And I had no idea about this when I went to Penn State. I had no idea I was befriended by someone who wanted to turn me in, by someone who knew everything I was doing. And he just bought two ounces from me over the course of six months. And that's what the police used against me to go into my apartment with a warrant was he'd come over previously that day, purchased just one ounce. And the police came in, found that marked bill, and then had the warrant to search my apartment. So this friend of mine who's, and that's whose phone I used to call my dad, call my mom, call my girlfriend after I was arrested was the person who snitched on me. And that's where like this feeling of betrayal and trust, I lost it. You know, I had no trust in anyone. Like I was so broken, you know, in that sense, like how did my world get turned upside down by this person? And I developed this resentment, this hate towards him. And during the time, like I said, the whole Penn State scandal was going on. So my court case got got postponed for one full year. And in that year, they allowed me to go to school. I finished my um, kind of my sophomore, junior year of college. Like I was like halfway through like 78 credits, 88 credits by the time I was done. And I'd done well in school. I got a major. I was studying. I had the same girlfriend. And she stayed with me through all this, going to court, getting postponed. And throughout this time, I got my first elbow surgery and I got a re- elbow reconstruction surgery where they unpinched the nerve. And in that time I got prescribed oxycodone and now I was fully addicted to doing between 30, 60 and 90 milligrams of oxy every single day. And this was while going to school, while going to court, while doing all this stuff as I was addicted to oxys. And I got the surgery and it kind of worked. It kind of didn't. My elbow kind of still hurt. And you know, then the next year came, I continued to, oh, big part of this whole Penn State situation. So I got the lawyer and everything. And in that summer, I was looking for new apartments. And I went on Craigslist, found some people that had apartments, went to view this one apartment, saw this kid had some blunts and joints in his ashtray. We started talking about pot. And we went out one night and I made a claim, yeah, I could get bud and blah, blah, blah. And takes me to Walmart says he has to go get some shoes and we're just talking whatnot and he makes like a question hey could you get me bought i'm like yeah i could get you know this for this this for this i could get five pounds for 10 grand i get two pounds for four grand and whatever i said and i didn't know all of this until after i got all the evidence this guy was also wearing a wire had police undercover police taking pictures of me so when i finally went to court they had two like cases against me like i didn't actually make any sales with this kid because i ended up finding out that he, he also was a confidential informant once I like put two and two together and started asking questions. And either way, when I went to court, they had evidence that, that I was selling drugs, that I was doing all this stuff that I, you know, was just, again, I, I wasn't up to anything good. I was selling cocaine. I was doing oxys, all this, you know, but I was still doing well in school somehow. And I was in my hometown. My lawyer called me and he said, the best we could offer you is six months in jail, three months house arrest. $80,000 in fines, your 13 felonies will be three felonies, two misdemeanors. And I was just like, what the fuck? Like in my head, I'm over here going to get probation. I'm going to get counseling. I'm going to get community service in my head. And then they told me, oh, you're going to get six months in jail, three months house arrest. And then they told me, oh, but part of that, you could do work release while you're in jail. So I would be able 
to go to jail, get a job on the outside, leave the jail to go to that job. And at that time, I had a job at a restaurant. So I'd be able to go back to that and be a server at that restaurant. So I surrendered myself summer of 2012 to serve six months, knowing I'm going to get out in three months with good time from having this work work release program, which gives you half of your time off. So it was like kind of ideal, like everything was set up, you know, so I go into the jail, jail sucks. I hated being there, wasn't, didn't want to be there. And I started going on work release and pretty soon in my work release, I started smoking cigarettes and I knew that there was a no tobacco policy at the jail, but I didn't know that there was a test, a test for nicotine. One night I get back to the facility and they said, you know, my last name and, you know, drug tests. And I knew I hadn't been doing drugs and they're like nicotine tests. And they put a nicotine swab into my urine. And then they were like, you're going to the bucket. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on? So at that time, and I was like in county jail outside of Penn State. My girlfriend's just about to come back for the semester. I'm in jail. I have an, I have an outside job. Everything's going to be good. I'm going to be out soon. She's going to be able to visit me in my job. I'm going to be able to like be out. Everything's good. Now my addictive ass, because I want to smoke a cigarette and feel well, just like to smoke a cigarette, starts smoking cigarettes on my work release. So then all of a sudden I go into solitary confinement and I serve 42 days of solitary confinement. And it was 44 days of the most traumatizing, you know, time of my life, just being in a cage within a cage, 23 and one around some of the most violent, vile, um, segregated housing unit, people waiting to go to prison, people that had done, can't be around other inmates sexual offenders, pretty scary crowd I was amongst. And And there you were amongst them, a vile cigarette smoker. They don't let you smoke cigarettes. They let you smoke cigarettes in fucking rehab. And yes, nicotine is a drug in the same way that caffeine is a drug. Anyways, sorry, continue. County jail in Pennsylvania, definitely. And I learned from that. So after that happened, I lost all my good time. I lost my outside job and I had to serve my full six months in jail. And now I was back in the general population. My girlfriend stayed with me. The time I was on solitary, she got to visit me while I was handcuffed and shackled through a screen door, talking on a phone. The most, again, you know, humiliating place I've ever been to. I had to bring someone to, you know, deprivation of humanity, abuse, abuse of power, just everywhere seeing hearing stories 20 times worse than mine and you know my skin color had a lot to do with my circumstances how i've you know maintained some level of not getting completely fucked is because of my skin color and that's part of our racial you know criminal justice system that's so fucked so i get out of jail um i go into house arrest and now I think this have this feeling of like, how could I get through house arrest without getting caught if I do something and I started doing oxy thirties and drinking a little bit, but like I found out that no one was coming to test me after like the first month. So I knew for three months I was going to be okay. And I started living this lie where I thought the world owed me something because now I'm out of jail and now I have this new freedom. And you know, poor me, poor me. I want to live my life. I move for the summer and I go to Boston, get a job at a nice restaurant. And I start serving at a nice high-end Italian restaurant in Boston. Started living in, you know, kind of mooching off a friend of mine who lived in Boston, who had an apartment. I didn't have to pay for rent. So now I was making money and spending all that money on Oxy 30s and just 
you know, whatever I wanted to for a full summer and still dating the same girl about to return back to Penn state for my senior year. And, you know, all ready to go back, go back for the first week. And the girlfriend that was getting me by the past two years stayed with me while I was in jail, caught me cheating on her. And she broke up with me then and hadn't wanted nothing to do with me and never spoke to me again, really. And at that point, 2014, finishing my senior year of Penn State, I was 100% addicted to um, opiates, oxys, heroin, doing every single day um, and trying to get by. And I hit a lot of more rock bottoms throughout that year, whether it had been, you know, just being dope sick, losing money, stealing from friends, you know, nearly getting arrested, being in situations that could have killed me, could have killed others you know, being around people who I never want to see again. But I was able to graduate from Penn State after a year. And I graduated, walked the stage after blowing down five bags of heroin, walked the stage with my mom watching me. My dad didn't show up to my graduation despite him paying $200,000 for me to go to school. He didn't come to my, my graduation. And, you know, he rightfully made the right choice. Who would want to be around a fucking junkie who walked across the stage, you know, who hasn't learned shit about life? And that's really where I was at that point, 20-something years old, six years it took me to get a piece of paper that said I had a bachelor's degree. And I moved back to my hometown, get a job in an office, and continue using more opiates every single day. It was just disgusting the amount of opiates I had access to. Um, You know, I had so many different drug connects, you know, cancer patients you know, different people in different parts of the community that, you know, got pills every day. And, you know, I got very immersed in that community. And, you know, very soon after my life spiraled out of control one night, I was single. I was sleeping around with different women. I was chasing women. And I flipped my mom's car in a ditch one night, high on morphine, Xanax, and probably about, you know, 16 shots of some sort of nasty vodka. And now... This is like four months after graduation. I get a DWI, flip my mom's car in a ditch. Now the courts are back after me. I'm addicted to painkillers, no job anymore, couldn't maintain any sort of job. And I started living off my friends' families and some friends of mine and finding situations just to get me by and, you know, odd jobs. I started serving at restaurants and trying to figure out how to just figure it out. And, you know, throughout this time, I. Yeah, met another relationship, and this was a senior at school at the university here, and you know, and I started dating her, living with her in her apartment, and I was a full-blown heroin addict, and now I was on kind of probation because the court sentenced me to two years probation rather than taking 90 days in jail because I couldn't do that because I was addicted to opiates. And what I've learned is there's no way you could be a functioning opiate, opiate addict on probation when you have to show up and do drug tests weekly and such. So I went on probation for about six months went on the run for probation about half of that ran away from two rehabs did a lot a lot of harm in this time the most harm that i've ever committed to people in relationships i robbed drugs from people who are no longer living to this day as a result of continued repercussions from act my actions and you know i just one night i got caught in every single lie by the girlfriend she saw every saw through everything found out about everything she was already at the end of it we've already had all these horrible turning points and you know i got very angry violent 
and destructive. And, you know, she was able to call my dad. My dad showed up to my apartment with six sheriffs and the sheriffs tackled me. And there I was the next day shackled to a hospital bed waiting to go to court to go to jail for six probation violations. And there I was again with nothing at this time. I had absolutely nothing, no life, no, no one, no future, no, no girlfriend, no apartment, no job. And I was hopeless and detoxing now from in jail in 2015. I was detoxing from doing about two grams of heroin a day, cocaine daily, Xanax, Klonopin, drinking, smoking pot. You know, I was barely functioning. I was 130 pounds soaking wet, 138 pounds. I'm normally 170, you know, and I had every fear, insecurity wearing everywhere on my sleeve. And I stayed in jail for three months, made a decision that I wanted to go to rehab and seek treatment. Took a long time for the courts to agree to me to go to treatment because they wanted me to just do my jail time. But they allowed me to go to treatment, went to treatment for three months. Now I got out of treatment after three months, been sober six months, felt good about my life, where I was going. I was going to get a job, a little office job. I was going to get involved with the community, start doing some this and that, start doing that. And then all of a sudden, one of my closest friends died of a heroin overdose and that I, I relapsed later that day and went out for another um, four months. And in this four months, I started smoking crack and now I was addicted to heroin and crack on a daily basis. Um, on the run from probation yet again, because I got out of rehab with time still attached to my sentence and I was supposed to stay sober. So I was on the run, had to surrender myself, couldn't do it for an entire summer, finally surrendered to the court. So I get, get sentenced to a month and get out of, get out. I use about for another week and then I make this desperate attempt to everyone in my family that I need to leave my hometown and they figured out how to get me out to Montana and I moved out to Montana in 2016 and began my first like attempt at staying sober where I was coming off crack heroin drinking all everything I had no probation attached to me and now I'm in a new state, new opportunity, and I'm living in this really cool situation. I'm living on this spiritual retreat center with 24 other people, not anything to do with addiction, but more about spirituality and discipline and religion, not necessarily even religion, excuse me, but like practice and a way of life, um, kind of similar to Buddhism, Hindu kind of stuff. And I started living here and I started facing me at this first time in my life where I started facing not being able to run away from me and I still managed to get myself into like five or six blackouts you know just completely you know finding out that alcohol did not work it did not solve any of my problems I'd find out about a death of a friend of mine and I'd drink in a different state and think that was going to help the situation and you know just ruin what was going on in my life there and I would begin living a lie where I was trying to stay sober and, you know, do the right thing. But I was still really incapable of being honest with myself. So I started, you know, drinking just beer, smoking pot, pretending to everyone that I was sober. And I was able to pull this off for about a year. In this time, I did some work, work on myself. I was trying to live differently, but I was still living this escape world where when no one else was looking, I was able to escape to my vices to 
And this time it was just Budweiser and marijuana, just keeping it simple. Um, and so I spent this year in uh, Montana and in the course, I ended up meeting a chef who um, gave me the opportunity to work across country in his kitchen in Portland, Maine. So I got all my cards together, got everything together, made all of my manipulate, you know, kind of con artist moves with my, with my mom, my dad, the people I was living with, the support systems, the people in AA that had been helping me through things. And I had really put on this whole show that I was sober, got it together. I was pretty good at cooking. I knew how to cook pretty well. You know, I knew how to, you know, throw down in any kitchen and, you know, whip things up. And so I felt, had this confidence in me that I, you know, was ready to take the step and move across the country and start cooking. And right before I was ready to move, a week before, had the job, had already visited Portland, found my apartment, found, you know, where I was going to, you know, how my life was going to look. I stayed there for a week. I decided to go to a music festival in Montana and I get to this music festival and drove drunk across the state, get to this festival, get into the festival. My phone dies and I just decide, fuck it. I'm just going to go, go with the night. And I ended up taking some drugs, doing some Coke, doing some Molly, drinking more. And by five in the morning, I came to, to a man sucking me off. And I like freaked out. I fucking lost my mind. I fucking ran outside with barely any of my stuff. I left stuff behind. I didn't know where my car keys were. My backpack was, I lost them somewhere in this music festival. And, you know, I start running to find this car and I had a, my girlfriend's car that I had stolen and manipulated to have a car, even though I didn't have a license during this time. And so I run to get this car just to get inside it to sleep. It's like five, six in the morning. And I take this rock and I bash it over my head three times. I break the window. And as I break in the window, I sever all the tendons in my pinky. I didn't know they were severed at the time. I just know I had a cut in my hands and it was bleeding everywhere and I was fucked. And there I was on my 5 a.m. after waking up to this crazy fucking situation calling 911 to come pick me up when I have a stolen car, no license, drunk, on drugs, bleeding profusely, get dropped off in the middle of fucking nowhere hospital. They stitch my hand up, stapled up, kick me out of the hospital. I call a taxi, get back to my car, have no idea where my car keys are. And this next morning, I, I stayed awake. I walked around this downtown city in Montana where they have open container laws started drinking with homeless people at 7.30 in the morning where I was drinking Natty Daddies in this, you know, disgusting 2020, I don't even know what flavor it was. It was so gross at 7.30 with homeless people because I had nowhere else to go. And I was just, there I was in the middle of Montana drinking my fucking problems away, my pain away, not even knowing how to process anything anymore. And I'm supposed to go to Montana the following, or excuse me, go to Portland the next week to move and start cooking. And there I find out I have a severed pinky and, you know, I didn't tell my mom, my dad, didn't really tell the chef, the restaurant where I was going in Portland. I just moved to Portland anyways. And I had this hand injury that got worse and worse. It got infected twice. And I started taking opiates again because they were prescribing me opiates for the surgery and the pain. And now I was just addicted to not feeling the pain in my hand and escaping and waiting to cook. And I figured out how to 
manipulate not cooking and not working for a while i started doing some computer work where i was doing data entry to pay my pay my like my not even my rent my dad was still paying my rent and you know and then finally my hand kind of healed and i started working in the kitchen and for eight months i worked in this kitchen and i drank every day outside of working and i worked often 50 60 hours in the kitchen and then i drank all the others and recovered all the other hours and in this time, I started seeing a woman who I met in the program, and she was living in a sober house in this community, and I started dating her. And then all of a sudden, me and this woman were drinking, and then all of a sudden, me and this woman were drinking, doing coke, and doing smoking crack together. In about two months of that, I found myself waking up in a county jail in Portland, Maine, after a night of coke, crack, alcohol, marijuana, and I was facing assault charges and I had no idea what I had done. And that was the most, that was my last, um, my last drunk 2018. I woke up in this county jail and I had no idea how I'd gotten there and how everything in my life had came crashing down. In those eight months in Portland, I got chewed up, spit out, drank myself through oblivion so many times, had so many wake up opportunities to cut it out, to grow up, to focus on what's in front of me. And I said, Nope, I'm going to, I'm going to sabotage everything by drinking and chasing this woman. And I sabotaged everything, spent 21 days in jail, got out of jail. And I went to a sober house for three months, knowing I had to finish two more months in jail. As part of my sentence, they sentenced me to 90 days in jail. I served 30 and then another 60 and three months in the sober house began like a foundation in my recovery and I had to learn how to surrender. I had to learn how to face myself. I had to learn how to work the steps of AA. I had to, you know, I had to, I had to let go of who, all the things that I thought I was doing, you know? So for three months in the sober house, I didn't work. I went to three, four A meetings a day. I had a sponsor. I worked the steps. I went to jail, I, you know, and, you know, I got out of jail and I was living in Maine and I found out in Maine, you could smoke marijuana on probation and they weren't going to drug test you. And then I started smoking weed and, you know, I got off my probation for a year, continued to work and my life continued to get better. I had a, a decent relationship. I had got rehired by the same chef. He gave me another opportunity. You know, I was making some decent money enough to get by and pay my rent and save some money. I still didn't have a license, but I was working towards, you know, getting my license back, finishing all my requirements for that, getting, you know, money, getting my financial history cleaned up and continuing onward. And like, but I was smoking pot and it was all right, you know, and then I had three months that I was able to take off from work to get a umbilical hernia surgery, January of 2020. And I got this hernia operation and I was able to take off from work and start collecting unemployment for three months and I was going to get start back work in April and then COVID hit March of 2020 and the restaurant that I was working at closed. I got hired in my hometown working on a campaign. So I started working heavily on this campaign for a district attorney and I was really involved in creating a website, campaigning, getting all this whole stuff all through COVID and getting this election ready and I was smoking pot and, you know, I was now I was making more money and I moved back home. You know, I had my license now and, and you know, I felt good. And I was like, we're going to win this election. This candidate's going to win. I'm still smoking pot. And 
you know, then at the very end, the candidate loses by 1%, like by 500 votes, he loses. And we find out at the last minute. And a week later, I find myself in my hometown, unemployed, no really relationship, not really knowing what I'm doing. And I find myself right back to opiates. And for one year, I fucked around with fentanyl. And the year from July of 2020 to July of 2021, I relapsed on and off fentanyl for a year. Um, and that became every attempt to run for myself, to not face some of the things I'd done, to not face the thing that happened in Montana, to not face the things that happened in Portland, to not face the things that happened as a child. And I continued to, you know, run from myself and not knowing who I was because I was so scared of me and I hated myself, had the self-hatred, the self-judgment. Um, you know, I wasn't who, where I wanted to be in life. My friends are married. They have great jobs. They have money. They have cars. They own houses. I wanted all of that and I didn't have it. And I was just now using fentanyl by myself just to get by. You know, I was working in a restaurant, still cooking. You know, I was able to, you know, have money. I was able to buy a car. I was able to get my credit score up enough to do some things. And, you know, I got in a new relationship at this time and, she helped me through one full year of fentanyl addiction and to the point where last summer, July, 2021, I found myself three days of smoking crack and using fentanyl that I thought I was going to overdose and die. And it wasn't so quick that I picked up the phone and I said, give me help with every ounce of my body. I'm done with all of this. I can't do it. I don't know if I'm going to kill myself today. I don't want to die. I don't know how to live. I have no idea what to do. Help me. And my girlfriend, she got me to my aunt's house in Boston where I was able to stay for five days. They were able to get me on a plane to Montana. I went out to Montana for 45 days, went hiking, went backpacking, got back in AA, got a sponsor. And this time I just started telling my truth as I know it, as honestly as I could to every single man that I trusted. And I started talking a lot and I started talking every day and I started opening up and I said, I have no shame in who I am, what I've done, what I've had to do to survive, to get to who I am. And I'm done letting that, you know, control me. I'm done being controlled by, you know, this monster that I created. And I, you know, I just really surrendered. And, you know, I started to learn how to surrender every single day in Montana. And I went to two to three meetings a week and I started opening up. And, you know, July 21st, 2021 is the last time that I used any sort of substance and, you know, I, in that time of surrendering, of doing the work that the program teaches me that AA has saved other people's lives when they work the program to the, you know, the promises that they talk about come true in my life today. I have a job that has given me financial security. I just bought my first house. You know, I have a relationship with the same woman who got me through this addiction, who I trust me who we're honest to each other. We get, we don't fight. We are there for each other. And, you know, I have a life today because I was able to face this part of me that I was so scared of facing the insecurities, the, the shame, the things I've done, the abuse, the, the relationship with my father. Um, you know, right now to this day, I haven't talked to my dad in five months because it's the best thing I've ever done to distance myself from someone who has given me so much pain while I'm focusing on myself, on my job, on my career, my relationship, you know, my recovery, I've had to do what's right for me. And today I know what that is because I have the help from others. I have people in my life on a daily basis that have given me 
you know, the tools to use. And I use those tools daily. The first six months of my sobriety, I used a shot called Vivitrol. Vivitrol was a, helped me not relapse on opiates. Um, I got to a point where I no longer felt that I was going to use opiates. And, you know, still to this day from doing what I do, meditation, prayer, surrender, working with others, sharing my story. I work in a juvenile detention center with other, um, with kids that are going through trauma, abuse, legal issues. So I'm able to work in a way that my life has, my whole life experience has prepared me to work in that type of environment. You know, I've spent 16 months in county jails, seven months in rehabs, you know, you know, 10 years on probation. So I have, you know, learned how to live without a drink, without a drug. I've learned how to use, you know, a higher power, someone that's not me to make my choices for me, to let go of what I think's right, the right thing to do and do what others tell me to do sometimes, you know, pray on it, let the answer come to me. I don't, I practice restraint of pen and tongue. I don't just say what I want to say to people. I don't always let my emotions wear on my sleeve. So I'm having a bad day. So I'm going to carry that into my job or I had, had a bad day at work. So I'm going to take that home to my, you know, to my partner. So I've learned how to live in this world that's, I'm okay waking up in. And I think that's the biggest thing about finding out who I am and, you know, who I was in the past is today I'm okay. I'm able to wake up in my body and my skin and my mind and have love for myself and feel comfortable in my skin and not have to run to anything to fix, to give me a feeling that I can't create for myself. And from, you know, result of doing work in AA, working with the kids in the juvenile setting, you know, I do service. And that feeling of service is better than any high I've ever gotten from heroin, opiates, cocaine, crack, anything. And, you know, I, and that's, that's the craziest part about it. It's like feelings I get today are better than any feeling I ever tried to get from any substance. And, you know, there's one day at a time is the message for me is I just take things simply, keep my life simple today. And I'm going to keep, you know, sharing my story when I can and helping others. There's no doubt that punishing drug use heightens the stigma of addiction. And this caller is proof that punishments don't help the addict. There's always been a war on drugs, but we need a war on addiction. The war on drugs has filled our prisons and destroyed families. A war on addiction is backed by science and promotes policies that are moored to human rights. Care and compassion will always go further than police and prisons. I'm Quick Nick. Thanks for listening.